Hi, everyone. I've been asked to share about my experience of reorienting my faith in relation to health. And um, I'll just start by saying I no longer believe that uh, hell is a literal place of punishment and torment for, um, for people. Um, I think several of us probably have different ideas of how we would explain hell, literal or not literal. But, um, but for me, my view has definitely changed from what I was raised with. Uh, I'm a lifetime Christian, and I've always struggled with believing in hell as a punitive place. Um, I was raised Calvinist, so in that context, it was even a little bit harder because people were um, predestined to believe or not believe. So I remember being a teenager who was um, doing what would be kind of the equivalent of confirmation, sitting across from my pastor to talk about faith. And asking, you know, can you explain this to me? How is it that people are predestined to go on to um, eternal punishment? So it was, it's been a difficult uh, doctrine for me for a long time. Um, about 20 years ago, I started to want to nail down what I believed about it a little bit more. Um, I was excited to find out that I'm not the only one who believe, who does not believe in hell, but can still be a Christian. Two big things um, kind of helped me reorient my faith. One was someone who was very close to me wrote his master's thesis on the rhetoric of hell. And um, he discovered, I think Ken's going to give some more of this kind of history, but he discovered that there was a significant historical figure, Tertullian, who um, about 200 years after Christ used hell as a tool of persuasion. So there is a, a rhetoric to what we believe about or what we've been told about hell that um, has been used to try to persuade people to stay in the church, to stay faithful. So that was kind of an interesting thing to start to dig into that history that's behind what we've been told to believe now. And the other big thing was uh, something we talk about at Blue Ocean quite a bit, which is uh, coming to believe that scripture is uh, contextual that it's multivocal, that it's not always literal. So then I could look at a story like um, the poor man and the rich man that Jesus talks about, um, the poor man going to heaven, the rich man in hell, and the interaction that's between them. I can look at the context of a story like that and not necessarily think that it's um, that Jesus is saying there is a literal hell, there's a, a literal heaven that would look like this story. So that was a helpful thing for me. And seeing the Bible this way has really increased its relevance to me. I feel that uh, the spirit can use it in a wider variety of ways when I kind of release the idea that it's going to um, dictate or uh, be something I have to explore in a literal way. Um, recently, I went for a walk with a friend who is currently struggling with reorienting, um, particularly about hell and scripture. And she asked, how do we know who is in? If we let go of something like this, how can we make, how can we know who is in, who is out? And we talked about how there is a willingness to, to let go of certainty that comes with reorienting faith that um, we then trust that Jesus is the judge because he said he is. And um, the spirit becomes our standard of um, understanding. So, 
I would just end by saying um, my own spiritual growth, I think, was deeply impacted by letting go of the doctrine of hell as a place of punishment. Um, it's helped me embrace what my heart longs to anyway, which is that we have a loving God that um, would not create such a, a punitive place. That's it for me. All right. Thank you so much, Sue. Um... I, I, I'm going to make a reference to your church, actually, that you grew up in, I think. Uh, so I had an intersection with it as a 19-year-old um, related to this topic. So last week, or last session, we talked about, you know, sometimes your, your, your faith just gets tangled up like a, you know, ball of knotted yarn or whatever. And I had this experience where I lost my, air, my AirPods and I had to go back to my old, uh, you know, whatever these things are called to uh, talk on the phone and I, you know, I wrapped them up real nice and I, they, they started off very tidy. I put them in my pocket and like six hours later, I pull them out of my pocket and they're all tangled up like this. And it's like, that's what happens to our faith sometimes. And when you're in that position, you know, you can't untangle it all at once. You look for like, okay, where's a good place to start the untangling process where I can loosen this sucker and get this uh get this back into some format that's useful and i think an excellent knot to untangle early on in the process of reorienting your faith or doing going through deconstruction and reconstruction of faith whichever you know framework kind of matches your own experience a great place to start is the doctrine of eternal hell so that the traditional hell doctrine it turns out is a later development in Christianity, one that is now embedded in the official teachings of many churches, however. So it's, it's definitely a staple of uh, evangelicalism, certainly fundamentalism. Uh, how did this happen? Well, hell as it is taught today as a realm or a state of never-ending punishment after death for certain people was, was not the consensus view until centuries after the time of Jesus. So it's it's not found, this doctrine, in the writings of Paul, which is very significant because Paul's letters are about a third of the New Testament, and he's the closest to like an articulator of the, of the teachings of Christianity uh, after the uh, death and rising of Jesus. Earliest written witness we have of the Jesus movement, actually, Paul's writings precede the Gospels uh, historically. So so we'll start with, with looking at views of the afterlife in the ancient Judaism that gave rise to Jesus and Paul. Like what was their, what was their um, matrix on this, on this question? So the ancient, ancient Judaism of Jesus and Paul had many views of the afterlife. The language of ancient Judaism regarding afterlife is different than later Christian language, which focused uh, almost exclusively on the heaven-hell binary. But ancient Judaism referred to things like the age to come, or to the resurrection of the dead, or to a future reckoning or, or day of judgment. Uh, some in this period, so the second temple period that Jesus and Paul were part of, uh, some believed in a resurrection of the dead, but others, there was a whole significant party called the Sadducees that denied the resurrection from the dead. Those who believed in the on, 
going existence of the soul after death. Actually, many uh, in ancient Judaism did not. They had various views on what it meant and how this related to issues like future judgment and the resurrection of the, the dead. So in Hebrew, the term Sheol refers to the bowels of the earth portrayed as the place of the dead. But in most instances, Sheol seems to be more a metaphor for oblivion than an actual place where the dead live and retain conscience, consciousness. I'm, I'm quoting from a, a Jewish scholar with that. The, the righteous and the wicked alike are depicted in Sheol in the Old Testament or, or what we uh, call the Hebrew Bible, which, remember, was the scripture, was the Bible of Jesus and of Paul. So obviously, this is a different understanding than the present-day doctrine of hell. Um, a common view in ancient Judaism of this period and in Judaism today place lim time limits on any punishment at, or reckoning after death. Another view held that only the righteous would live forever after death while the wicked would cease to exist. That's sometimes referred to as annihilationism. Uh, some thought after death, uh, souls would undergo a time-limited period, period of purification or purgation, leading then to everlasting life with God. So there are like many different perspectives. The early Jesus followers believed in a future resurrection of the dead, clearly. Uh, they believed the whole movement got started because Jesus was experienced as risen from the dead. This was like a sign of the coming uh, resurrection that all would undergo um, with some interim period of existence after death, but before the final judgment, which was usually tied to the general resurrection from the dead in Jewish thought. But there was a variety of views, speculations really, about the question of an individual's eternal destiny. Where, where, do, where do people end up at the end of this uh, unfolding process? So in the generation after Jesus and the original apostles, sometimes called the age of the church fathers, a key figure, arguably the most prominent of his time, was Origen of Alexandria. Uh, and Origen taught universal salvation. In other words, that eventually all will be saved. This is sometimes called universalism. Uh, other universalists from that period include Clement, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great. So there's some very prominent people who are teaching this in the early centuries of the church after the period of the original apostles. It wasn't until the fourth century that the doctrine of hell as never-ending punishment became kind of ascendant in Western Christianity especially. Uh, the figure who advanced this doctrine, who's, who has secured it in a sense, is Augustine of Hippo, a major influence on Roman Catholic and Protestant Christianity. And it's interesting that Augustine wasn't literate in Greek. He, he's, he was literate in Latin, not Greek. And the, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. So he had some um, disadvantages in terms of understanding the original writings, which were were in uh, were in Greek. In fact, the major translation of the Hebrew Bible read read by the Jewish people was in Greek as well by that period. So by the 13th century, hell was fully enshrined in Catholic Orthodoxy, 
mainly through the writings of Thomas Aquinas, a, a revered figure in uh, Catholic teaching, one of the doctors of the church, a very kind of elevated status of authority. And this teaching was that after death, some would be saved. Again, in Catholic thinking, after a time of purgation, purgatory, while others would endure never-ending punishment. So uh, the Italian poet Dante from the same period, again, we're talking about the 13th century, popularized the teaching of Aquinas in the Inferno. Uh, and this is where we get most of our popular imagination about hell. The, the seven circles of hell come from uh, Dante's Inferno, imaged as very vividly as a place of everlasting torments that fit the sins of the of the people in different ways with different degrees of uh, torment. Within fundamentalism and evangelicalism, hell is described as a state of eternal conscious torment. So, you know, and to emphasize it's eternal, it doesn't end, it goes on infinitely, and it's conscious torment. So this is a, it's an interesting doctrine to be attached to something that's called good news. The hell doctrine can get even more extreme than this, and, and Sue alluded to this in her, um, from her tradition. I actually became a Jesus follower while remaining agnostic on hell. So, you know, I'm 19 years old um, at the time. I heard about people talking about hell, and it's like, that doesn't make sense to me. It's up to God anyway. So, like, I didn't, I didn't fuss over the, over the issue. It was, it was, I was kind of an agnostic about the doctrine of hell, didn't know what to believe. The first actual church I tried to join uh, when I was up here in Ann Arbor going to the University of Michigan was a church in the Calvinist uh, tradition. It may actually have been the, the church that Sue grew up in, I'm not sure, but uh, the pastor there, and again, this we're talking about 1971, so, you know, 1971, 72, so it was quite a while ago. Uh, I went to the pastor, how do you join the church? I've never joined a church before, what's the deal? And the pastor gave me two documents, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort. So I went home and read, read them, and they contain the most extreme version of hell, not only as a state or a place of never-ending punishment, but the added twist of double predestination, which is the belief that some are created by God for the explicit purpose of damning them, and that the damned glorify God by being damned. So, <laughs> poor me, you know, I'm like a young Jesus freak, you know, I've got Jesus is alive on the back of my, my blue jean jacket, and I've got beads and long hair, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, superstar, and I read this, and I'm like, oh my Lord, and I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of myself, because at the tender age of 19, I went back to the pastor after reading those booklets, and I said, if this is true, no one should be allowed to teach it. And, and I declined membership in the church that day. Um, so while the doctor of hell as never-ending punishment for temporal sins remains, in a sense, on the books in many Christian denominations, in modern times it is often ignored or, or soft-pedaled. So a common apologetic for hell is something we can only choose for ourselves. So this is a common way of presenting uh, the doctrine of hell, so it's more pal palatable. But God doesn't choose hell for anyone, but he respects our choice to be separated from God. 
So I'd like to just make the case for rethinking hell more to the point of actually, I'm, I'd like to make the case for rejecting the traditional uh, doctrine of hell as, as we've been talking about it here. Let's start with the softest version of hell, not the one that claims God actively sends people to hell, or worse, that he creates some people for the purpose of damning them, but the view that hell is required uh, by the doctrine of free will. So this reasoning goes like this. God is so committed to our free will that he won't override it for those who refuse God's love. Furthermore, if we have a soul that lives on forever after death, and we have the capacity to choose separation from God over union with God, then we either become by our own choice in the language of C.S. Lewis, everlasting splendors or everlasting horrors. This is a softer version of the doctor doctrine, but even that has an obvious problem. I mean, we humans are limited, frail creatures. We're not completely autonomous, free, moral agents based on full knowledge of the universe. What we want, what we desire, our will is subject to many external influences. Our will can be shaped by ignorance and by our own faulty perceptions. Will divine love not save us from that frailty of our humanity that affects our will? Um, that, that doesn't make sense for us. So that, that particular version doesn't resonate with me. The traditional hell, hell doctrine, including the softer versions, I think just simply fails the, the justice test. Now, the, the thinking here is that, well, wait a minute, one of the principles of justice is that the punishment needs to be proportional to the, to the offense. How can offenses that are committed in a time-limited lifespan by mere creatures with limited perceptions and knowledge lead to a divinely imposed or even just a divinely allowed punishment that literally never ends, that is infinite, that goes on forever and ever. If the crime is finite, even if it's grotesque and, and massive, uh, if it's finite, how, the, how can the consequences be infinite? This, to me, just violates basic justice, not just mercy. So some claim without hell there can be no accountability. But there are other ways to accomplish accountability for our actions without an infinite eternal punishment. Uh, Paul, St. Paul, uh, seems to have held this view. David Bentley Hart, I'll be recommending his book at the end here, points out that in Paul's writings, the only actually picture he provides of the final judgment or reckoning is one in which he identifies only two classes of the judge, judged those whose deeds in this life endure and those whose deeds are purified by fire leading to their eventual salvation so an, another point to make here is that proponents of the hell doctrine doctrine claim it is required by scripture but it is grounded in interpretations that really do wilt under scrutiny so i i don't reject the hell doctrine because I believe it's taught in scripture and I reject that part of scripture. I mean, that's something that people do, especially who don't have a higher view of scripture and the inspiration of scripture. But, but I think if you just use the generally accepted principles of interpreting scripture, 
you cannot justify the hell doctrine as it is taught in many traditions today. The sayings of Jesus in the Gospels are cited as the most compelling evidence for hell. Uh, remember, Paul doesn't teach anything like the hell doctrine. And these Jesus sayings occur in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're absent in John's Gospel. The hell sayings in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, take place in five discrete um, settings uh, with three instances or settings that are repeated. Sometimes, you know, something that's in the Gospel of Matthew is repeated in a slightly different version in Gospel of Mark and so on. So in, in a sense, there are seven hell sayings, uh, situations or contexts in the Gospels. They all involve highly figurative language kind of language that's characteristic of prophetic utterance, given as a warning to those in power, abusing their power over others. And in all of these instances, they're not aimed at common people, but those with some spiritual or religious authority. For those who suffer cruel oppression from the powerful, saying in effect, the powerful will have hell to pay, in that context, actually, that's quite a that's a great consolation. But there's a more basic problem, and that's one of translation. So using the English word hell to translate the Greek words used in these gospel sayings is extremely misleading. Remember, the, the, the original gospels were not written in English, <laughs> despite what people say about the King James Version. They were read in uh, Koine Greek, a, a common sort of street Greek of that period. And the Greek words are Hades and Gehenna. And they, do, they are not equivalent to what the English word hell uh, came to mean many centuries later. Here's why. Uh, the Greek term Hades, very similar in meaning to the Hebrew Sheol. Again, Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament. And that Hades refers to, again, the realm of the dead. Both Hades and Sheol were understood as a realm where all the dead, righteous and unrighteous a lot, resided. And they often had kind of a shade-like existence. Uh, it was not uh, conceived as a place of torment. The Greek uh, Gehenna actually referred to an actual location in Palestine at that time, outside the city of Jerusalem. People are not really sure exactly what Gehenna was or the Valley of Hinnom is another version of that and the difference between Aramaic and Greek there. Some earlier legends regard Gehenna as the place of child sacrifice. This would be from an earlier period. Others view it as a trash heap. I think the latter would make sense of Gehenna described as a place with fires that don't go out. Where the, where the worms don't die, because these are characteristics of, of, of landfills. Um, you, know, you know, in a landfill or a large trash heap, the fires are, in a sense, purifying. Uh, things that are burned are not burnt, are burned up. They're, they're, they don't, you know, a, a tire isn't burned forever. It's, it burns and it burns, and then it's, uh, and then it's burned up. They don't exist eternally. Obviously, to use the term Gehenna, which is an actual location. And when, when the Gospels use that term Gehenna, it's clearly understood to be figurate, figurative. Jesus is not saying people are going to go to this 
trash heap after they die. He was using it in a figurative, metaphorical way, not in a, in a literal way. Nevertheless, major translations use the word hell to translate both Hades and Gehenna. King James Version, Revised Standard Version, New International Version, New American Standard Version. These are the translations of committees of scholars with ties to church institutions that have doctrines that uh, influence, I think, some of the word choices. Often the translations are designed for use in churches uh, that teach hell as infinite punishment for finite sins. At least now, many modern translations, uh, even if they use the word hell, uh, include footnotes to indicate that the Greek is either Hades or Gehenna or Valley of Hinnom, um, and that hell is an English translation of this original uh, Greek word. Uh, there's one instance of the Greek word other than Hades or Gehenna that is sometimes translated into English by the word hell. It occurs in 2 Peter 2.4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So the Greek word is not hell. That's the English translation in many translations of 2 Peter 2.4. The Greek word is Tartarus. Tartarus is from ancient Greek mythology. Tartarus was known to be the first century uh, to first century Romans as the prison of the Titans and the deepest recesses of Hades, nothing more. So that doesn't describe the eternal hell of the hell doctrine. Uh, the text itself says certain angels are there until the judgment. So it's explicitly in the text, an interim, not an internal state. Some translation problems. So th this is basically one major translation problem for these three Greek words, Hades, Gehenna, and uh, Tartarus. It just doesn't accurately translate any of the three Greek, Greek words used in the New Testament. But there's an equally problematic second translation problem. So the English word eternal, meaning time that goes on forever, is a very misleading translation of the original Greek word aeon and its cognate aeonios. Here's an example of its occurrence in the final uh, parable of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. This is actually a beloved gospel for people who are concerned about social justice. I think Steve, I think this is Steve Gray's favorite parable in the gospel, maybe his favorite portion of the gospel. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a very significant parable because it's the last of the uh, parables in Matthew. So it's kind of a culmination of the teaching through the parables, the social justice parable uh, about the necessity of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the pr prisoners, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. In many English translations, it includes like this, concludes like this, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There the underlying Greek word is not Gehenna, or Hades, or Tartarus, it's a description of this, of what will happen. Sounds like Jesus is describing hell 
as never-ending punishment, what evangelicalism calls eternal conscious torment, doesn't it? Except that the original Greek word rendered eternal, aeonios, a variant of aeon, means more accurately age to come, the age after this one. So the word, root word aeon is like our English eon. So eon in English comes from aeon in Greek, and it means an age of limited duration. We use it to refer to geological ages or the Bronze Age or the Paleolithic Age, but also uh, periods of shorter duration, the Information Age or the age of the gas-powered engine. Uh, so long or short, aeon in English, again, that's derived from the Greek aeon, is a period of limited duration. So David Bentley Hart writes, Basil the Greek reported that the great majority of Eastern Christians, in other words, those who spoke Greek as their native language, assumed that the Aeonios Colossus, I'm transliterating the words that are used in that Matthew parable that are translated e eternal punishment. He translates them as ch chastening of the age and it would only be consistent with a temporary probation of the soul. That's from David Bentley Hart, a uh, Greek scholar, by the way. To understand the problems caused by misleading translations of key Greek words, that's, that's I think, a very compelling case against the doctrine of hell as it has been traditionally taught. There's a compelling case that it is a hell is a mistranslation of Hades and Gehenna, and that eternal, as in time without end, is a mistranslation of Ionios. Not to mention that chastening, <laughs> a discipline that rehabilitates, is a better translation of the Greek Colossus. It's a better translation, I think, in English than punishment, which in English uh, often implies to us vengeance. So I, f I find this alone a convincing case that Jesus did not teach the doctrine of hell as we understand that it today, and, and it can't be justified by appeal to scripture. I don't mean to pile on, kidding, not kidding, uh, <laughs> but here's for me a clincher on the question of whether or not Jesus taught hell as a place of never ending infinite punishment. There are more statements in scripture that speak of eventual universal salvation, then there are statements mistranslated with the English word hell. So in his uh, excellent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation, uh, David Bentley Hart uh, lists 23 portions of scripture that seem to describe a universal salvation. I'll, I'll uh, wrong book here, I'll pick out just a handful uh, if you get the book, you can read his list of 23, 23 texts that just on the, on the surface seem to indicate universal salvation. Here's one from Romans 5. So then, just as through one transgression came condemnation for all human beings, so also through one act of righteousness came a rectification of life for all human beings. Here's one from 2 Corinthians. For the love of the anointed constrains us, having reached this judgment that one died on behalf of all, all then have died. 
or even this is Romans 11, for God shut up everyone in obstinacy so that he might show mercy to everyone. Uh, here's another one from 1 Timothy chapter 2, our Savior God who intends all human beings to be saved, who wills all human beings to be saved, and to come to a full knowledge of truth, for there is one God and also one mediator of God and human beings, a human being, the anointed one, Jesus, who gave himself as a liberation fee for all. You can go on and on. Several texts like this that seem to be teaching something more like universal uh, salvation. Then, of course, people will say, well, that those are those are figurative, not literal. But then you can't you can't do that because if you're treating the highly figurative language of the Gospels as literal, but not treating these other verses that seem to imply universal salvation eventually, you know, just uh, not good. So conclusion. It is possible to believe in the doctrine of hell uh, if you want to. Many really great Christians believe the doctrine, but I don't think it's a belief that is grounded in the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels or in the New Testament. It's certainly not grounded in the Hebrew Bible. It's not a belief grounded in the teaching of Paul's letters, which is silent on which are silent on hell. It is it can only be grounded in a literal interpretation of mistranslated texts that are obviously figurative, not literal, and in at least in the case of the gospel sayings addressed to oppressors, not the oppressed, as a kind of prophetic warning using the age-old means of prophetic hyperbole that we find in the Hebrew prophets. So I think this leaves many alternatives open. Obviously, I lean toward the universal salvation option, but there are other options. I think a reasonable option is just agnosticism regarding the question of future destinies. Like, I don't know. I assume love wins, but how that works out is beyond me. And I don't need, I feel a need to have a best guess even. So I'm just agnostic on the question. I think it's a very reasonable posture to take. Annihilationism. I mentioned this earlier. Those who refuse divine love, again, assuming that the divine love is incapable of pursue, pursuing people and saving them, like a parent might snatch a child away who is determined to put their hand in an electric socket, violating the child's will. You know, that this is something parents can do. I think God can do this too. But even if you acknowledge this free will thing, now there are those who believe that that those who make that choice simply cease to exist. The downside, I think, of that is it doesn't account for the many statements that all shall be saved that you have in Scripture. But that is, that's an alternative, and it's certainly different than hell as a place of eternal conscious torment. And then there's universalism, which I've been uh, speaking about in this presentation. Eventually, all will be united with divine love. This includes the idea of an experience or a period of purification as accountability for our actions in this life. So there's many ways to frame universalism. The advantages of rejecting the never-ending punishment hell doctrine, I think, are many. It doesn't ask us to rede redefine divine love as simply one aspect of God's being rather than the irreducible fullness of God's being. 
know, God is love, irreducibly is love. God is not like a balance between love and, and these other, other things. I think it removes a major obstacle in experiencing the writings of scripture as a means of divine inspiration and help. I mean, if scripture teaches something so that so violates in our understanding of justice, how can we, how can we trust it? What's the point of reading it? I think it really removes a major obstacle in experiencing the writings of scripture as a means of divine inspiration. I think Sue mentioned this in her story. It removes a doctrine that is used to justify harmful teachings on the ground that eternal harm in this life trumps harm that happens in this life. Now that is, that is a move that people make. Like, yeah, this teaching, it sure seems to be hard on people. It doesn't seem to be life enhancing. It seems to actually be harmful to them, but only in this life and then in the life to come, if people are willing to, to be harmed in this way, then, you know, uh, this, I think, is a, uh, it doesn't take a sociologist to say this is a move that people make in order to control people with a trump card. And I think it's, it's really part of a process of healing our existential identity to differentiate from the uh, eternal hell teaching, our fear that a future in God's hands is not ultimately beautiful and glorious and good for creatures that God has created. I think if you meditate on the the doctrine of hell as it is, it's it's not so helpful for your understanding of God. But that's just my thought. Okay, resources. Sorry, I wasn't dispassionate about this particular topic, but I couldn't help myself. I recommend the New Testament, a translation by David Bentley Hart. He is a scholar at Notre Dame, and this is his uh, translation. He comes from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, so he's really steeped as a scholar in, in Greek. And this makes really plain all the different Greek words that are behind the words that in many other translations are translated hell. And he has a great appendix at the back where he gives you all this information about Gehenna and Hades and these other Greek terms. Um, so this is a really, this is a really good resource. He has written a book advocating a universal salvation. It's called That All Shall Be Saved. So this is this covers kind of philosophical issues as well as the scriptural issues, as well as giving you a history of how the Hell, hell Doctrine developed over time. And then finally, uh, a little book by John Sweeney, a friend of mine, called Inventing Hell, Dante, the Bible, and Eternal Torment. And um, this, is, this is a much more historical review of how the Hell Doctrine uh, developed and what went into that, especially in the 13th century. But he also covers Tartarus and Gehenna and Hades in here as well. And then I haven't read it in a long time, so I'm, I'm not super sure, but I think Love Wins by Rob Bell also addresses many of these issues. If you grew up with the doctrine of hell and were kind of, uh, kind of messed with your understanding of Christianity and was really a thorn in your side, 
I, I would really recommend reading a few books or getting podcasts by these people or others on this question. I don't think like hearing one presentation deals with the emotional impact that the doctrine of hell, especially if you heard it as a child and you didn't have the normal kind of filters and lenses and it's just like you've internalized it. I think it makes sense to like expose yourself to another perspective, you know, multiple times in order to kind of work this out at the psychological as well as the theological and scriptural level. Okay, done.